Section 49 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Eaton. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. Section 49. Chapter 14. Italy and the West, 410 to 476, by Ernest Barker. Chapter 14, Part 3. During the absence of Aetius in Gaul, Valentinian III had gone to the east and married Eudoxia, the daughter of Theodosius II, thus drawing closer that new connection of east and west, which had begun on the death of Honorius and had been testified by the dispatch of eastern troops to the aid of the western empire against the vandals in 431. One result of Valentinian's journey to the east was the reception at Rome by the senate in 438. The reception is described in an excerpt from the Acts of the Senate which precedes the Code of the Codex Theodosianus, a collection of imperial constitutions since the days of Constantine, which had just been compiled in Byzantium at the instance of Theodosius. Another result was the final cession by the Western Empire of part of Dalmatia, one of the provinces of the Diocese of Illyricum, the debatable land which Stilicho had so long disputed with the East. The session was perhaps the price paid by the West in order to gain the aid of the East against the Vandals of Africa, and more especially to secure the services of the fleet, which was still maintained in eastern waters. In spite of the Treaty of 435, the croachments of the Vandals in Africa had still continued, and they had even begun to make piratical descents on the coasts of the western Mediterranean. In the first years of his conquest of Africa, Gaiseric must have put himself in possession of a small fleet of swift cruisers, Liburni, which was maintained in the diocese of Africa for the defence of its coast from piracy. To these he would naturally add the numerous transports belonging to the Naviculari, the corporation charged with the duty of transporting African corn to Rome. In 439 he was able, by the capture of Carthage, to provide himself with the necessary naval base, and henceforth he enjoyed the maritime supremacy of the western Mediterranean. Like many another sovereign of Algeria since his time, Gaiseric made his capital into a buccaneering stronghold. Even before 435, he had been attacking Sicily and Calabria. In 440, he resumed the attack, and not only ravaged Sicily, but also besieged Panormus, from which, however, he was forced to retire by the approach of a fleet from the east. In the face of this peril, Italy, apparently destitute of a fleet could do no more for itself than repair the walls of its towns and station troops along the coasts, measures which are enjoyed by the novels of Valentinian III for the years 440 and 441. 
but Theodosius II, determined to use the eastern fleet to attack Gaiseric in his own quarters. The expedition of 441 proved, however, an utter failure, as indeed all expeditions against the Vandals were destined to prove themselves till the days of Belisarius. Gaiseric, a master of diplomacy, was able to use his wealth to induce both the Huns of the Danube and the enemies of the Eastern Empire, along the Euphrates, to bestir themselves, and Theodosius, finding himself hard-pressed at home, was forced to withdraw his fleet, which Gaiseric had managed to keep idle in Sicily by pretense of negotiation. The one result of the expedition was a new treaty, made by Theodosius and confirmed by Valentinian in 442, by which Gaiseric gained the two rich provinces of Africa Proconsularis and Byzacena, and retained possession of part of Numidia, possibly as full sovereign and no longer as Foederatus, while he abandoned to the empire the less productive provinces of Mauritania on the west. But the treaty could not be permanent, and the two dangers which had shown themselves between 439 and 442 were fated to recur. On the one hand, the piratical inroads of Gaiseric were destined to sap the resources and hasten the fall of the Western Empire. On the other, Gaiseric was to continue with fatal results the policy, which he had first attempted in 441 of uniting the enemies of the Roman name by his intrigues and his bribes in a great league against the empire. It is of these two themes that the history of the Western Empire is chiefly composed in the few remaining years of its life. The loss of Africa thus counterbalanced, and indeed far more than counterbalanced, Asia's arduous recovery of Gaul. Elsewhere than in Gaul and Italy, the Western Empire only maintained a precarious hold on Spain. Britain was finally lost. A Gaulish chronicler notes under the years 441 to 442 that the Britons, hitherto suffering from various disasters and vicissitudes, succumbed to the sway of the Saxons. The Diocese of Illyricum was partly ceded to the Eastern Empire, partly occupied by the Huns. Gaul itself was thickly sown with barbarian settlements. There were Franks in the north and Goths in the southwest. There were Burgundians in Savoy, Alamanni on the upper Rhine, and Alans at Valence and Orleans, while the Bretons were beginning to occupy the northwest. In Spain, the disappearance of the Vandals in 429 left the Suaves as the only barbarian settlers and they had for a time remained entrenched in the northwest of the peninsula, leaving the rest to the Roman provincials. But the accession of Rescia in 438 marks the beginning of a new and aggressive policy. In 439 he entered Merida on the southern boundary of Lusitania. In 441 he occupied Seville, and conquered the provinces of Baetica and Carthagena. The Roman commanders who in Spain, as in Gaul, had to face a jacquerie of revolted peasants 
as well as the barbarian army, were impotent to stay his progress. By his death in 448, he had occupied the greater part of Spain, and the Romans were confined to its northeast corner. Such was the state of the Western Empire when the threatening cloud of Huns on the horizon began to grow thicker and darker, until in 451 it finally burst. Till 440, the Huns, settled along the Danube, had not molested the empire, but had, on the contrary, served steadily as mercenaries in the army of the West, and it had been by their aid that Aetius had been able to pursue his policy of the reconquest of Gaul. But after 440, a change begins to take place. The subtle Gaiseric, anxious to divert attention from his own position in the south, begins to induce the Huns to attack the empire on the north, while at the same time a movement of consolidation takes place among the various tribes, which turns them into a unitary state under a single ambitious ruler. After the death of King Rua, to whom Aetius had fled for refuge in 433, two brothers, Attila and Bleda, had reigned as joint sovereigns of the Huns. But in 444, Attila killed his brother, and rapidly erecting a military monarchy, began to dream of a universal empire, which should stretch from the Euphrates to the Atlantic. It was against the Eastern Empire that the Huns, like the Goths before them, first turned their arms. Impelled by Gaiseric, they ravaged Illyria and Thrace to the very gates of Constantinople in the years 441 and 442, and the Anatolian peace of 443 had only stayed their ravages at the price of an annual hungeld of over £2,000 of gold. But it was an uneasy peace which the Eastern Empire had thus purchased, and in 447, Attila swept down into its territories as far as Thermopylae, plundering 70 cities on his way. After this great raid, embassies passed and repassed between the court of Attila and Byzantium, among others the famous embassy, 448, of which the historian Priscus was a member, and whose fortunes in the land of Huns are narrated so vividly in his pages. Still the Hungels continued to be paid, and still Theodosius seemed the mere vassal of Attila. But on the death of Theodosius in 450, his successor Marcion, who was made of sterner stuff, stoutly refused the tribute. At this crisis, when the wrath of Attila seemed destined to wreak itself in the final destruction of the Eastern Empire, the Huns suddenly poured westward into Gaul and vanished forever from the pages of Byzantine history. It has already been seen that under the influence of Aetius, the relations of the Western Empire to the Huns had been steadily amicable, and indeed that Hunnish mercenaries had been the stay and support not only of the private ambitions of the Patricius, but also of his public policy. 
The new policy of hostility to the empire, on which Attila had embarked in 441, seems for the next ten years to have affected the East alone. During these ten years, the history of the Western Empire is curiously obscure. We hear nothing of Asius, save that he was consul for the third time in 446, and we know little, if anything, of the relations of Valentinian III to the Huns. We may guess that tribute was paid to the Huns by the West, as well as by the East. We hear of the son of Asius as a hostage at the court of Attila. We know that during the campaign of 441 to 442, the church plate of Sirmium escaped the clutches of Attila and was deposited at Rome, apparently with a government official. And we know that in 448, Priscus met in Hungary envoys of the Western Empire, who had come to attempt to parry Attila's demand for this plate. To this motive, which it must be confessed, appears but slight, romance has added another. In order to explain the diversion of Attila's attention to the West in 451. In 434, the Princess Honoria, the sister of Valentinian III, had been seduced by one of her chamberlains and banished to Constantinople, where she was condemned to share in the semi-monastic life of the ladies of the palace. Years afterwards, embittered by a life of compulsory asceticism and snatching at any hope of release, she is said, but our information only comes from Byzantine historians, whose tendency to a feminine interpretation of history has already been noticed, to have appealed to Attila and to have sent him a ring. Attila accepted the appeal and the ring, and claiming Honoria as his betrothed wife, he demanded from her brother the half of the Western Empire as her dowry. The story may be banished, at any rate in part, as an instance of the erotic romanticism, which occasionally appears in the Byzantine historiography of this century. We may dismiss the episode of the ring and the whole story of Honoria's appeal, though we are bound to believe, on the testimony of Priscus himself, confirmed by a Gaulish chronicler, that when Attila was already determined on war with the West, he demanded the hand of Honoria and a large dowry, and made the refusal of his demands into a casus belli, but there are other causes which will serve to explain why Attila would in any case have attacked the West in 451. The Balkan lands had been wasted by the raids of the previous ten years, and Gaul and Italy offered a more fertile field, to which events conspired to draw Attila's attention about 450. A doctor in Gaul who had been one of the secret leaders of the Bagaudi had fled to his court in 448 and brought word of the discontent among the lower classes which was rife in his native country. At the same time a civil war was raging among the Franks. Two brothers were contending for the throne and while one of the two appealed to Asius, the other invoked the aid of Attila. Finally Gaiseric was instigating the Huns to an expedition against the Visigoths, 
whose hostility he had had good reason to fear, ever since he had caused his son, Huneric, to repudiate his wife, the daughter of Theodoric I, and send her back mutilated to her father, some years before, 445. The reason here given for hostility between the Vandals and the Visigoths, which only comes from Jordanus, is perhaps dubious. The fact of such hostility, resting as it does on the authority of Priscus, must be accepted. When the Huns poured into Gaul in 451, the position of the Western Empire seemed desperate. It was perhaps a little thing that a terrible famine, obscenissima famis, had devastated Italy in 450. Far more serious was the absence of any army with which Aetius might confront the enemy. For the last 25 years he had relied on Hunnish mercenaries to fight his battles, and now, when he had to fight the Huns themselves, he was practically powerless. Everything depended on the line which the Visigoths would take. If they would combine with Rome in the face of a common danger, Rome was saved. If they stood aloof and waited until they were themselves attacked, Rome could only fall. Attila was cunning enough to attempt to sow dissension between the Visigoths and the Romans, writing to assure either that the other alone was the object of his attack. But his actions were more eloquent than his words. After crossing the Rhine, somewhere to the north of Mainz, he sacked the Gallo-Roman city of Metz. The Romans now awoke to the crisis. Aetius hastened to Gaul and collected on the spot a motley army of mercenaries and foederati. Meanwhile, as the Romans looked anxiously to the Visigoths, Attila moved on Orleans in the hope of acquiring possession of the city from the Alans who were settled there, and so gaining a base of operations against the Goths. The move showed Theodoric I his danger. He rapidly joined his forces with those of Aetius, who now at last could draw breath, and the two together hastened to the defence of Orleans. Finding Orleans too strongly guarded, Attila checked his advance and retired eastwards. The Allies followed, and near Troyes, on the Moriac Plain, was engaged Bellum Atrox Multiplex Imane Patinax. The great battle was drawn, but its ultimate result was the retreat of the Huns, after they had stood their ground in their camp for several days. We are assured by more than one of our authorities that the camp might have been stormed and the Huns annihilated, but for the astute policy of Aetius. Perhaps he desired to keep his hands free to renew once more his old connection with the Huns. Perhaps he feared the predominance of the Visigoths, which would have followed on the annihilation of the Huns. At any rate, he is said to have induced the new Gothic king, Thorismud, Theodoric I had been killed in the battle, to withdraw at once to his territories. By representing forcibly to him the need of securing his succession against possible rivals at home, a bridge was thus built for Attila's retreat, and Aetius was able to secure for himself the booty which the retreating Huns 
were forced to relinquish in the course of their long march. The significance of the repulse of Attila from Gaul by the joint forces of the Romans and the Goths has already been discussed at the beginning of this chapter. The repulse was no decisive crisis in the history of the world. The empire of Attila was of too ephemeral a nature to be crucially dangerous, and his attack on the west was like the passing of a transitory meteor, which affected its destinies far less than the steady and deliberate menace of the policy of Geyseric. But the meteor was not yet exhausted, and Italy had to feel in 452 what Gaul had experienced in 451. Attila now marched from Pannonia over the Julian Alps. Achillea fell, and the whole of the province of Venetia was ravaged. Passing from Venetia into Liguria, the Huns sacked Milan and Pavia, and the way seemed clear across the Apennines to Rome itself. Aetius, with no troops at his command, was powerless. A contemporary writer, Prospero, failing to understand that the successes of the previous years had only been won by the aid of Goths, blames the Roman general for making no provision according to the manner of his deeds in the previous year, failing even to bar the Alpine passes, and planning to desert Italy together with the emperor. In truth, the position was desperate, and it remains one of the problems of history why the Huns refrained from attacking Rome and retired instead to the Danube. Tradition has ascribed the merit of diverting Attila from Rome to Pope Leo I. The Liber Pontificalis tells how Leo, for the sake of the Roman name, undertook an embassy and went his way to the king of the Huns and delivered Italy from the peril of the enemy. It is indeed true that the emperor, now resident in Rome, joined with the senate in sending to Attila an embassy of three persons, one of whom was Pope Leo, and that soon after the coming of this embassy, Attila gave the signal for retreat. It may be that the embassy promised Attila a tribute, and even the hand of Honoria with a dowry, and it may be that Attila was induced to listen to these promises, by the unfavourable position in which he began to find himself placed. His army was pressing for return, eager perhaps to secure the spoils it had already won, and alleging the fate of Alaric as a warning against laying hands on Rome. His troops, after all their ravages, were suffering from famine, and an Italian summer was infecting them with fever, while the eastern emperor, who had been occupied by the council of Chalcedon and the problem of Eutychianism in the year 451, was now dispatching troops to the aid of Aetius. Swayed perhaps by these considerations, Attila listened to the offers of the embassy and returned home, and there he died, in the year after his Italian campaign. The death of Attila was followed in the next year by the assassination of Aetius, 454, and the assassination of Aetius was followed a year afterwards by the assassination of his master, Valentinian III. The death of Attila and the subsequent collapse of the Hunnish Empire, which had rested entirely on his personality, 
deprived Aetius of any prospect of support from the Huns, if his position were once again challenged. Nor was there, after the end of the war with Attila, any pressing danger which made the services of the great soldier indispensable. He had never enjoyed the confidence of the Theodosian house. He had simply forced himself on Placidia and her son Valentinian, both in 425 and in 433. Placidia, a woman of ambitious temper, must have chafed under his domination, and she must equally, as a zealous Catholic and the friend of the Roman party in the empire, have resented the supremacy of a man who rested on barbarian support and condoned, if he did not share, the paganism of supporters like Litorius and Marcellinus. She had died in 450, but the eunuch Heraclius had succeeded to her policy and influence, and in conjunction with the senator Maximus, he instigated his master to the ruin of Aetius. The ambition of Aetius made Valentinian the more ready to consent to his ruin. No son had been born to Valentinian from his marriage with Eudoxia, and Aetius apparently aspired to secure the succession for his own family by gaining the hand of one of the two imperial princesses for his son Gaudentius. One of the few things, however, which stirred the pusillanimity of the Theodosian house to action was a dynastic question, and as Theodosius II had been ready to go to war rather than admit the elevation of Constantius to the dignity of Augustus in 419, so Valentinian III nerved himself to assassinate Aetius with his own hand, rather than permit the marriage of one of his daughters to the son of a subject. At the end of September 454, as the minister and his master sat together over the accounts of the empire, Valentinian suddenly sprang up from the table and, after hot words, drew his sword on Aetius. Heraclius hurried to his aid, and the two together cut him down. Thus he fell. At ke cum ipso, Hesperium, secedit regnum. Of his character and real magnitude we know little. Gregory of Tours preserves a colourless eulogy from the pages of a contemporary prose writer, and the panegyrics of Meribordes were equally colourless that he was the one prop and stay of the Western Empire during his life is the unanimous verdict of his contemporaries. But whether or no he was really great as a general or a statesman, we cannot tell. He was beaten by Boniface, and it was not he but the Goths and their king who really triumphed on the Moriac plain. Yet he recovered Gaul in a series of campaigns and he kept the Visigoths in check. As a statesman, he may be blamed for the neglect of Africa, and a too ready acquiescence in its occupation by Gaiseric. Yet it may be doubted whether the Roman hold on the allegiance of Africa was not too weak to be maintained, and in any case he kept Italy comparatively free from the ravages of the Vandals so long as he lived. If he was less Roman than his predecessor, Constantius, he was far more Roman than his successor, Ricimer. 
and if he had occasionally used the arms of the Huns for his own ends, he had also used them to maintain the empire. One merit he had which must count for much, the merit of recognising and encouraging men of ability. Majorian and Marcellinus, two of the finest figures in the history of the falling empire, were men of his training. A wit at court, when asked by Valentinian III what he thought of the death of Aetius, replied, Sir, you have used your left hand to cut off your right. In truth, Valentinian signed his own death warrant when he joined in the murder of his minister. He had hastened immediately after the murder to send explanations to the barbarian Foederati, with whom Aetius had been allied. But vengeance was to come upon him within his own court. Maximus, the senator, who had joined with Heraclius, encompassing the ruin of Aetius, had hoped to succeed to the position and office of his victim. Disappointed in his hopes, he resolved to procure the assassination of Valentinian and to seize for himself the vacant throne. Two of Aetius's followers, whose names Optilla and Throstilla, suggest a Hunnish origin, were induced to revenge their master, and in March 455, Valentinian was assassinated on the Campus Marti in the sight of his army while he stood watching the games. Heraclius fell with him, but not a hand was raised to punish the assassins. With Valentinian III, the Theodosian house was extinguished in the west, as it had already come to an end in the east on the death of Theodosius II in 450. Though he had ruled for thirty years, Valentinian had influenced the destinies of his empire even less than his uncle Honorius. Procopius, if his evidence is worth consideration, tells us that Valentinian had received an effeminate education from his mother Placidia, and that when he became a man, he consorted with quacks and astrologers and practised immorality. He only once flashed into action, when, piqued by the presumption of Aetius in aspiring to connect himself with the imperial family, he struck him down. He thought he had slain his master. He found that he had slain his protector, and he felt a helpless victim to the first conspiracy which was hatched against his throne. The twenty-one years which precede the utter extinction of the Roman Empire in the West are distinguished in several respects from the preceding thirty years in which Aetius had ruled and Valentinian III had reigned. The master of the troops is still the virtual ruler of the empire, and after a short interval, Rusima proves himself the destined successor of Aetius. But the new master of the troops, in the absence of any legitimate representative of the Theodosian house, shows his power more openly. He becomes a king-maker instead of a prime minister and ushers on and off the stage a rapid succession of puppet emperors. And while Aetius had rested on the support of the Huns, Rissima uses instead the support of new German tribes. The death of Attila in 453 had been followed by a great struggle between the Huns and the various Germanic tribes, 
whom they had subdued. The Ostrogoths and the Jeopardi, the Rugi and the Heruli and the Skiri. At the Battle of Nedio, the Huns had been vanquished, and the German tribes had settled down in the Danubian provinces, either as independent powers or as foederati of the Western Empire. It was from these tribes, and particularly from the Rugi, Heruli and Skiri, that the army of the Western Empire was drawn for the last twenty years of its existence. The Rugi were settled to the north of the Danube, in what is now Lower Austria. They appear in the history of the time, now as sending troops to Italy, for instance in 458, and now as vexing with their inroads the part of Noricum, which lay immediately south of the river. The life of St. Severinus, one of the most trustworthy and valuable authorities which we possess, describes their depredations and the activity of the saint in protecting the harassed provincials. The Skiri had settled after 453 in the northwest corner of modern Hungary, but, shattered in a struggle with the Ostrogoths in 469, they had either merged themselves with the Heruli or passed into Italy to serve under the Roman standards. The Heruli had also settled in Hungary, close to the Syri. They were a numerous people, and they supplied the bulk of the German mercenaries who served in the legions. Herulian troops were the leaders in the revolt of 476, which overthrew the last emperor. And Adavacar is styled Rex Herulorum, it was the steady influx of these tribes which led to their demand for a regular settlement in Italy in 476. And when that settlement took place, it involved the disappearance of the empire from Italy and the erection in its place of a barbarian kingdom similar to the kingdoms established by the Vandals and Visigoths, except that it was a kingdom resting not on one people but on a number of different, if cognate, tribes. Apart from these new factors, the play of forces remains in many ways much the same. The Gallo-Romans still form the loyalist core of the empire, but the advance of the Visigoths threatens and finally breaks their connection with Rome. There is still an intermittent connection with the East, and the policy of Gaiseric still contributes to determine the course of events. It was Gaiseric who, after the catastrophe of 455, first struck at the derelict empire. The assassination of Valentinian had been followed by the accession of Maximus. The head of the great family of the Anisai, Maximus was the leader of the senatorial and Roman party, and his accession would seem to indicate an attempt by that party to institute a new government independent at once of the Magister Militia, at home and of the Eastern Emperor at Constantinople. But it was an age of force, and in such an age, such a government had no root. Gaiseric saw his opportunity, and with no Aetius to check his progress, he launched his fleet at Rome. Byzantine tradition ascribes the attack once more to the influence of a woman. Eudoxia, the wife of the murdered Valentinian, whom Maximus had married to support his title. 
is said to have invited Gaiseric to Rome, as Honoria is said to have invited Attila, in order to gain her revenge. In reality, Gaiseric simply came because the riches of Rome were to be had for the coming. As his ships put into the Tiber, the defenceless Maximus fled from the city and was killed by the mob in his flight after a brief reign of seventy days. The Vandals entered Rome unopposed in the month of June. Once more, as in the days of Attila, the church showed itself the only power which, in the absence of an army, could protect the falling empire. And at the instance of Pope Leo, Gaiseric confined himself to a peaceful sack of the city. For a fortnight the Vandals plundered at their leisure. Secura et libera scrutationi. They stripped the roof of the Temple of Jupiter of its gilded bronze and laid their hands on the sacred vessels of the temple, which Titus had brought to Rome nearly four hundred years before. Then they sailed for Africa with their spoils and with valuable hostages, destined for the future to be pawns in the policy of Gaiseric, Gordentius the son of Aetius, and Eudoxia the widow of Valentinian, with her two daughters Eudoxia and Placidia. The next emperor, Avitus, came from Gaul. Here Thorismud, the new king of the Visigoths, who had succeeded to his crown on the Moriac plain, had been killed by his brothers in 453, for pursuing a policy contrary to Roman peace. Theodoric II, his successor, owing his succession to a Roman party, was naturally friendly to Rome. He had learned Latin from Avitus, a Gallo-Roman noble, which he showed his Latin sympathies by renewing the old Foedus of the Visigoths with Rome and by sending an army to Spain to repress the Burgaudi in the interest and under the authority of the empire. Avitus, who had been dispatched to Gaul during the brief reign of Maximus, as master of the troops of the diocese, came to Toulouse in the course of his mission, during the summer of 455. And here, on the death of Maximus, he was induced to assume the imperial title. The new emperor represented an alliance of the Gallo-Roman nobility with the Visigothic kingdom, and the fruits of his accession rapidly appeared when Theodoric, in the course of 456, acting under an imperial commission, invaded and conquered the Suavic kingdom in Spain, which had shown itself of late inimical to the empire and had taken advantage of the troubles of 455 to pursue a policy of expansion into the Roman territory in the northeast of the peninsula. But Avitus, strong as was his position in Gaul and Spain, failed to conciliate the support of Rome. He was indeed recognised by the Senate when first he came to Rome at the end of 455, and he was adopted by the eastern emperor Marcion, as his colleague in the government of the empire. But difficulties soon arose. One of his first acts had been the dispatch of an embassy to Gaiseric, who seems to have annexed the province of Tripolitana and reoccupied the Mauritanius during the course of 455. 
Avatus demanded the observance of the treaty of 435, and sent into Sicily an army under Rissima, the Suave, to support his demand. Gaiseric at once replied by launching his fleet against Italy, but Rissima in 456 was able to win a considerable victory over the Vandal fleet near Corsica. The victory might seem to consolidate the position of Avitus, but Rissima determined to use his newly won influence against his master, and he found a body of discontent in Rome to support his plans. Avitus had come to Rome with a body of Gothic troops, but famine had compelled him to dismiss his allies, and in order to provide them with pay before they departed, he had been forced to strip the bronze from the roofs of public buildings. In this way he succeeded at once in finally alienating the Romans, who had always disliked an emperor imposed upon them by Gaul, and in leaving himself defenceless, and when Rissima revolted, and the Senate, in conjunction with Rissima, passed upon him the sentence of deposition, he was forced to fly to Gaul. Returning with an insufficient army in the autumn of 456, he was defeated by Rissima near Piacenza, and his short reign was ended by his compulsory consecration to the office of bishop, and shortly afterwards by his death. It is curious to notice that the two things which seemed most in his favour had proved his undoing. The Gothic invasion of Spain, successful as it was, had left him without the aid of the Gothic king at the critical moment, while Rissima's victory over the Vandals had only impelled the victor to attempt the destruction of his master. Rissima, now virtual ruler of the West, was a man of pure German blood, the son of a Suavic noble by a Visigothic mother, the sister of Wallia, Magister Militum. He is the successor of Stilicho and Aetius, but unlike his predecessors, he has nothing Roman in his composition and little that is Roman in his policy. Stilicho and Aetius had wished to be first in the state, but they had also wished to serve the Theodosian house. Rissima was a jealous barbarian, erecting puppet after puppet, but unable to tolerate even the rule of his puppets. His power rested nakedly on the sword and the barbarian mercenaries of his race, and one only wonders why he tolerated the survival of an emperor in Italy throughout his life, and did not anticipate a Dovacar in making a kingdom of his own instead. It may be that his early training among the Visigoths and his subsequent service under Aetius had given him the Roman tincture which Odovacar lacked. In any case, his policy towards the Vandals and the Visigoths shows something of a Roman motive. End of section 49